Good morning. We are Tom and Jerry Olson, and you've probably seen us around for the past 20 years. What you haven't seen, probably, are our seven children and our 16 grandchildren, but that's what makes up our family. Today we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 7. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz and Shiriashav, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or a high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Since the year of 2020, uh, much has occurred in our own nation and around the world. Uh, events like the death of George Floyd, along with others, generated protests, riots, and looting. The president faced an impeachment trial, and the divide in American politics continued to deepen. COVID-19 caused a global pandemic, shutting down entire countries. Civil wars continued to worsen in countries like Ethiopia. Supply chain issues became prominent with port congestion and manufacturing delays. There's been a worldwide surge in inflation. Iran's 
nuclear program made strong advances. Russia invaded Ukraine, U.S., China. Tensions continue to escalate. Many are sounding the alarms concerning climate change. And most recently, Hamas, with its despicable uh, terrorist acts against Israel, has provoked another significant conflict in the war-tattered Middle East. And all this in a span of less than four years. And I think from just this brief overview, just considering the lay of the land, which is in no way exhaustive, is that we as believers live in an unpredictable, ever-changing world. And for many of us in such unsettling, seemingly unsafe times, we live with fear and worry in our hearts. We worry about wars and rumors of wars. We worry about financial collapses. We worry about future pandemics. We worry about political agendas. We worry about the effects of godless cultural norms. We worry about our school systems. We worry about who to trust and where to get true reliable information from. Some of us don't even trust our doctors anymore. And into this morass of fear and worry and uncertainty, God wants to speak courage into our hearts this morning. Because the, uh, the question I believe our passage answers this morning is this. Why can believers live with peace and hope and courage in a world swirling and surrounding us with threats? Why can you, why can I live with an indomitable indestructible peace that grounds us even though the whole world shakes, crumbles, and gives way. And amazingly, Advent answers that question. More specifically, the sign of Emmanuel answers that question. And so since we've already read the passage, let's go ahead and pray together and we're going to dig in. Father in heaven, you are gracious and merciful. You are our sovereign Lord. And so we come asking you now, according to your mercy, you would open our ears, you would open our hearts to receive your word afresh, that you would confirm and strengthen our faith, that you would build us up, that you would call us to greater obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, our passage begins by giving us some important historical background information. Uh, so go ahead and look at verse 1 with me. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. This first introductory line tells us that the events recorded in this account occurred while a man named Ahaz was king over Judah. And then the text goes on to say, during that time, so during the reign and the days of Ahaz, Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. And to make this situation more clear, uh, here's a map on the screen uh, that displays the geographical boundaries of these three nations. And for some, this might be a little confusing because at this point in the history of Israel, 
They are no longer one unified nation, but they are two divided nations. While once they operated under the single name of Israel, a great divide occurred after the death of Solomon, and now the southern tribes are referred to as Judah, and the northern tribes are referred to as Israel. And I remember as a new believer, I, I was saved at 18, didn't have much church background, reading my Older Testament and being confused, like, which one should I root for? Is it Judah? Is Israel? I thought Israel were the good guys. Now Israel's kings are all evil. What is going on? Uh, so I just wanted to briefly say we're rooting for Judah, not because Ahaz either, but because of God's promises to David. Um, and what we're told in verse 1, though, in this situation, okay, here's the situation. Reason, there's the king of Syria, he's made this alliance with Pekah, the king of Israel. And now they're joined forces to come against the king of Judah, Ahaz. And what's at play in the background of that our text, uh, that our text doesn't mention, is Reason and Pekah, they're mad. They're upset because Ahaz wouldn't join their alliance to come against the world power of the time, Assyria, which you can see is uh, north of Syria on that same map. And so that's why, as we'll see later, uh, one of the primary goals, like one of the primary aims of this invasion uh, is to overthrow Ahaz and then set up a puppet king who would lead Judah to join their alliance against Assyria. So that's the historical context. Two kingdoms are joining forces to come against the kingdom of Judah. And in verse 2, we get to see Ahaz's and the people of Judah's first response, like when they hear uh, that Reason and Pekah are joining forces, and they have this new alliance, we get to hear their first response. So look at verse 2 with me. It says, when the house of David was told, Syria, so King Reason, is in league with Ephraim, so think King Pekah and Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. This picture used to describe their hearts, their, their inner emotions uh, as trees with their leaves being blown and, and shaken and blown and shaken by the wind depicts Ahaz and the people as paralyzed with fear. They are frozen, stuck. They feel completely helpless. And when we read more about the background of this situation in other places of Scripture, we can begin to understand why. Why are they so scared? Why are they so shaken at this point? In 2 Chronicles 28, we're told that even before Reason and Pekah joined forces, even before they came to seize the capital city of Judah, Jerusalem, which is the timing of our passage, Ahaz and the people of Judah already suffered significant, great, devastating losses at their hands. So, for example, in 2 Chronicles 28.5, it says that the king of Syria, Reason, defeated Ahaz and took captive a great number of his people and not only did reason hand a defeat to Ahaz, but it also in verse 6, it says that Pekah, the son of Ramalia, so king of Israel, killed 120,000 from Judah in one day. So reason's ha handing them a, a, a defeat. Pekah's killing 120,000 soldiers in one day. Also, in verse 7 of the same passage, we're told that a military leader, a commander, 
of Israel killed Ahaz's son and his palace commander and his most trusted official who was second in command to King Ahaz alone. And if that's not enough, in verse 8, we're also told that the men of Israel captured 200,000 women and children, sons and daughters of Judah, and it stole all of their possessions. And so even before Syria and Israel make this alliance, even before they come together, they had already delivered devastating blows to Judah. And so when King Ahaz and the people, they hear that these two great enemies have joined forces. They've come together now to seize Jerusalem. They shake with fear. They think all hope is lost. What could stop this? It's a nation in crisis. In fact, if we jump down to verses 5 and 6 below, just listen to how the war plans, these are the war plans of Syria and Israel are described. They're troubling. Speaking to Ahaz, Isaiah says in verse 5, Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia, so think Israel, so Syria and Israel has devised evil against you. Saying, so this is their plan. This is what they want to do. Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. They don't just want to make a, a conquer it. They want to terrorize Judah. And then let us conquer it for ourselves and then set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. So the plan is to invade, terrorize the people of Judah, and then depose their king. Simple plan. And, and, and this shows us that the stakes are higher than they might imagine. Because the national crisis was not only a threat against the individual lives of Ahaz and the people, but even more, the plans of Pekah and Reason threatened to thwart the fulfillment of God's eternal promise to King David. See, remember, God promised. He made an unbreakable covenant with King David in 2 Samuel 7. It's one of the most crucial passages in Scripture. And in verse 16 specifically, God says this to David. He promises this king. King David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So the living God promised David, he made an indestructible covenant. I'm going to do something. I'm going to establish the rule of your lineage until the end of time. Yet, if reason and Pekah succeed and destroy the line of David, that promise will not come to pass. And, and so it's not these, it's with these eternal matters, not just the temporary matters, the eternal matters at stake. It makes sense that a prophet of God gets involved at this point. Isaiah gets sent. And that's what happens in verse 3. So look there with me. It says, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz. Go find him. You and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and, and say to him, this is what I want you to say to him first, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. 
So Isaiah finds Ahaz checking on the water supply for Jerusalem in preparation for the coming siege. That's what he's doing. And based on these first words, these four commands from the mouth of Isaiah, it appears that the heart of Ahaz is still shaking like the trees. He's frantically trying to get everything ready for this attack. He's doing everything in his own power to save himself. And surely he has all these voices coming at him. Could you imagine? From his close advisors, from his military commanders, from the people, all with their own opinions and thoughts and concerns. And the prophet Isaiah is sent to Ahaz with a word from God. And the first command he says, the first thing he says to him is, be careful. Be careful. Knowing that in uh, such a stressful, scary time, leaders are prone to make fast and rash decisions, God encourages Ahaz to watch himself, to guard his impulses. Don't make any quick decisions. Slow down. Think carefully, Ahaz. And in the second command, God tells Ahaz to be quiet. (laughs) Stop talking. In other places of the Older Testament, that phrase is translated to be at rest. God is telling Ahaz, calm down. Take a deep breath. Settle your nerves, Ahaz. And then in the final two commands, which are closely related, God says to Ahaz, do not fear and do not let your heart be faint. See, the greatest threat to Ahaz was not reason or Pika, or their armies, it was fear. And discouragement that would drive Ahaz to distrust God. And so through the prophet Isaiah, God pleads with Ahaz saying, don't be scared. Don't don't panic. Don't be discouraged. I know their schemes. I hear what they're saying. I know their plans is to terrify, conquer, and usurp you. You know, therefore, I have sent Isaiah with a message for you. And here's the message, verse 7. Here's the message. Look there with me. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. In other words, God says to Ahaz, it is not the plans and schemes and plots of man that will continue and stand, but it is the purpose of God that will be established. And this is the first reason why as believers we can walk and live in peace even in the midst of war, even in the midst of pandemics, even in the midst of political corruption, it's because the nations of this world are not ultimately in control. God is. God rules the nations. He's the only one who can gaze upon by what all appearances looks like an unstoppable plan of men. Who can stop Pika? Who can stop reason? He's the only one that can look at it and say, it shall not pass. He's the only one who can make a promise to set up a king on David's throne forever and then organize all of history to bring about this plan. He's the only one who can order and hold the universe together. God rules 
the nations. They do his bidding. They bring about his plans. And this is one of the core messages. This is, this is a core message running throughout the book of Isaiah. Over and over again, God reminds his people through Isaiah of this reality. He is sovereign. Isaiah 40, 15 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. A small drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Isaiah 40, 17 says, All the nations are as nothing before him. In fact, they are accounted by him as less than nothing. Uh, again, Isaiah 40, 22 says, It is he, so God, who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants. All seven billion of them are like grasshoppers. God stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He, he, he creates the universe and it's like popping a tent for God. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And I could keep reading passage after passage, but the point is clear. We serve, we love, we worship a majestic, all-powerful, all-wise, sovereign God. And he is working out every detail of our existence according to his plan. Reasons and Pikas and Putins and Bidens and Hamases don't rule this world. Our God does. That's what verse 7 teaches us. That's why we can have confidence and stability and hope and courage in our hearts this morning, no matter what befalls us. But Isaiah's word from the Lord comes with a warning for Ahaz. And for us all. It comes at the end of verse 9. So look there with me. After assuring Ahaz that the plans of reason and peak are not going to happen. God says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Brothers and sisters, we must not only say with our lips that God is sovereign, we must believe with our hearts. We must align our feelings, our thoughts, our actions with this reality. We must read and watch the news with faith in God's sovereignty. We must see natural disasters with faith in God's sovereignty. We must look upon tragedy with faith in God's sovereignty. Because if we don't, God says to Ahaz, and by implication to us, we won't be firm at all. We will be full of fear and worry and anxiety and doubt and uncertainty. And so next time we come across a news report about a potential financial collapse, next time we hear rumors of war, next time we fear the election of a corrupt politician, next time we hear about evil cultural trends before we give way to fear, before we start to marinate in anxiety, let's ask ourselves, is God sovereign or not? Is God ruling over the nations and ordering all of history or not? 
Is he working all things together for the good of those who love him, as Romans 8.28 says, or not? Is God sovereign or not? That's the decision our heart must make every single day. Saints, the sovereignty of God is the foundation we stand upon to face every evil, every sorrow, every trial in this life. The sovereignty of God is the source of our confidence and hope and peace. We can be careful and be quiet and not fear because our God is in control. And so that's the first reason. According to our passage this morning, we can have peace in our world as believers because God is sovereign. Now, the second reason comes in the second half of Isaiah's conversation with Ahaz, the second half. Start reading with me at verse 10. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Now, the word sign here refers to a special event that demonstrates the genuineness and the certainty of a promise. And so God must have sensed that Ahaz wasn't convinced. He wasn't yet committed to trusting the sovereignty of God. And therefore, in his grace, God offers to give Ahaz a sign to strengthen his faith, to build him up. And according to the passage, there's no limitations. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And so Ahaz is basically handed a blank check. Yet surprisingly, Ahaz refuses to accept God's offer. Look at verse 12 with me. It says, but Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And at first, we're impressed by Ahaz, right? Wow, what strong faith. His response seems to be of one of great piety and respect for God until we, we look a little deeper and we find the truth. See, Ahaz didn't refuse God's offer because he respected and trusted God. He refused God's offer because he already made up his mind to trust in the nations. That's what we read about in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 7. It says, so Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, so the world power at the time. And this is what he says to him. I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me. Save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. See, Ahaz didn't want a sign. He didn't want to course correct. He didn't want to trust God. His mind was made up. He believed the only path of salvation was to trust his, put his trust in the Assyrians, a godless nation. And that's why in uh, verse 13, the refusal of Ahaz to accept the sign, it wearies and frustrates uh, the patience of both Isaiah and God. So verse 13, it says, look there. And he, Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men? You're already testing my patience that you weary my God also. So, but, but despite the stubborn faithlessness of Ahaz, God still decides to give the sign. He's going to give the sign. Because the sign is concerned with someone much greater than Ahaz. 
Because the sign is concerned with something bigger than Judah and Ahaz and the plan right now. And God tells us what this glorious sign will be. So look at verse 14 with me. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And here's the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So according to this prophecy, the the birth of an unidentified son to an unidentified woman is going to somehow confirm and validate God's promise to Ahaz that the plans of reason and Pekah aren't going to come to pass. Now, we know that this promise was fulfilled to some degree in the immediate context. Because in verse 16, it says that before this promised child, before the boy would know how to refuse the evil and choose the good, so before he could even make moral choices, the land of these two enemies, Israel and Syria, would be deserted. In other words, early in the life of this child to be born, Judah would not even have to worry about Syria or Israel anymore, just as God promised. And I think back to when he's making those frantic preparations and checking the water system and his heart shaking like fear. And the whole time he didn't have to worry. How many of us are like that? So the question becomes then, who's the child? Who's this child? Now, there are a few possible options on who this promised child is in Isaiah's day. Some think the immediate or near fulfillment of the prophecy refers to the birth of Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, who would become heir to the throne. And this makes a lot of sense because the birth and ascension of Hezekiah to the throne, so if Ahaz's son gets the throne, uh, that would only be possible if Pekin reason didn't succeed. So that would prove God's word true. So that makes sense. Others think that it may refer to the birth of one of Isaiah's sons, and still others think it refers to the children born to the women during the siege. And these women basically would name their children Emmanuel in faith that God's presence would ensure their survival. But whether it was the birth of Hezekiah or one of Isaiah's sons or the children of Judah in general, what is clear is that none of these options could completely fulfill this prophecy. They could only fulfill it partially. For one, the child is to be born of a virgin, and neither Hezekiah nor Isaiah's sons nor the children children of pregnant women in Judah fit that description. Two, the child is to be named Emmanuel, which means God with us, but the birth of a child in this context could only symbolize God's presence. That is, God would not actually be present himself in Hezekiah, for example. Three, uh, the birth of one ordinary child in 700 B.C. could not guarantee the saving presence of God for all time. Therefore, this, this prophecy, this sign of Emmanuel must reach far beyond the day of Isaiah to a future fulfillment. And that's exactly what we see in the Newer Testament. In Matthew's gospel account, writing under the authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we're told that Jesus is the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. If you remember, when Mary first was discovered pregnant by Joseph, which was a problem because they were just betrothed, he finds his fiance basically pregnant. He's like, okay, what do I do with this situation? How do I divorce her quietly? He's deliberating. 
And in uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, it says, But as he, Joseph, considered these things, he's thinking it through, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so brothers and sisters, in the same way, the partial fulfillment of this prophecy in the days of Ahaz was to give God's people courage. It was to put strength in their heart when it was shaking. Uh, even when powerful armies were marching down to Jerusalem, even when all hope appeared to be lost, even when they are surrounded by threats on every side, that partial fulfillment of the prophecy was to prove that God was sovereign over the nations and the ultimate sign of Emmanuel is to do the same for us today. Because Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. Because Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. Because Christ was crucified, buried, and died. Because Christ was raised on the third day. Because Christ ascended to the right hand of his Father. Because Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Because Christ will establish his throne forever. Because Christ is with us. We have peace. We have confidence. We have strength. We have stability. We have all that we need to live in a world full of threats and chaos and disorder. Dear saints, let us not put our hope in the nations. Let us not trust in men, but let us trust in our sovereign God who is high and majestic and holy, who sits above it all and reigns and rules and yet comes down among us to be with us to the end of the ages. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to look upon the sign of Emmanuel with faith. We want to see that how you have fulfilled prophecies from 700 B.C. to the birth of Christ, to his death and resurrection and ascension, and to his return. We want to believe you're sovereign when we watch the news. We want to believe you're sovereign when there's great loss in our life. We want to believe you're sovereign when we get a diagnosis from a doctor. We want to believe you're sovereign over it all and have unshakable courage, Father. Would you give us that faith so that we might be firm? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.